to another episode of The Explanation. Today, we're going to talk about something that affects absolutely all of us here in the United States, and that is the high cost of healthcare. I am Silvia Salazar from Tono Latino. I love researching and learning what's going on in U.S. politics, and that way I can share that with you and pique your curiosity so you want to dig more into politics and how they affect your daily life. You can find me at tono.latino on Instagram or tonolatino.com. And my name is Ian Stevens. I am a writer, a YouTuber, a political activist, and you can find me on my website at lucreciareport.com or on YouTube at the Lucretia Report. That's L-U-C-R-E-T-I-A. You can find us at The Explanation Pod on Instagram, explanation underscore pod on Twitter, and The Explanation Podcast on Facebook. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can email us at info at theexplanationpod.com. Okay, Ian, I said at the beginning of this episode that this is something that affects absolutely all of us in the United States. Healthcare is something that affects every person in the world, and it's something that we usually take for granted and something that, at least here in the U.S., everybody associates associates with very expensive bills. So I did some research to understand why healthcare is so expensive in this country, and I found that this is due to several different factors. Now, I want to ask you which ones come to mind first, because I'm sure that you have some idea on this. So to me, like my my general conception of it is that there's a profit motive. And like in every other business, they are driven to charge you as much as they think they can get away with. And a lot of times uh, they'll charge you, like I said, you know, as much as they think you'll pay and not necessarily how much it'll actually cost. I was in a Facebook thread the other day where people were talking all about hospitals and doctors charging them these huge amounts and then when they say i can't pay this they give them like a 90 percent discount which yeah apparently they could do uh the other day i got a bill in the mail for a physical that i got three years ago and they were trying to charge me like 2100 dollars for it three years later and i called them and i'm like there's no world in which i'm paying this and they they just straight up dropped it what yeah okay that is insane Now, in comparison, I have to share, in case some of our listeners don't know, I'm from Colombia. My mother lives in Colombia. She was recently hospitalized for 10 days because of a heart attack down there. And you want to guess how much she paid to get out of the hospital? Um, $25. Try zero. We haven't gotten, it's been over two months. There are no bills associated with her stay for 10 days in a hospital, seeing pneumologists, cardiologists, and all sorts of other doctors, tests, etc. Zero dollars. I saw this funny YouTube video where they were asking British people how much they thought an ambulance cost in America, and the first reaction is usually, that costs money, and then they're like, a hundred dollars, a hundred and fifty dollars. That is so sad. Okay, Ian, you were absolutely right about health in this country being just for profit. So there's a lot of greed involved. But I'm going to start with a very, very big factor that contributes to the high cost of healthcare, And that is the administrative costs. 
A recent study found that in 2017, administrative costs made up over 34% of healthcare costs in the United States. That's twice the percentage in Canada, which has a decentralized publicly funded system. Another example, Medicare, which is the healthcare system that people over 65 can sign up for, has much lower administrative costs that go between 1.1 and 7%. Compare that to the 34% that I mentioned earlier. Now, why is Medicare so much cheaper? It's because there's less bureaucracy involved or less time by employees and people spending time trying to deny people the care that they need. So instead of you hiring these armies of employees to figure out ways to deny care, then you have less employees doing that kind of work and your administrative costs are at a fraction of the average in the United States. The U.S. has a very complex system with separate rules, funding, enrollment dates, and out-of-pocket costs, and all depending on where you get your insurance from. If it's from your employer, if it's private from what we call healthcare.gov, or Medicaid or Medicare. And even those groups or those um, sources of medical insurance, they have different tiers and levels of coverage. So it is very complex. Back to my example about my mother, for example. Um, She has Medicare, but there's apparently four parts to Medicare. So she has one, but if you she wanted to have more coverage in case she were here in the United States, she's not. And that's why she doesn't have all the coverage because she doesn't need it. There's additional things that you have to get. So there's part A, part B, part C, part D, and all of those involve different things. It is very complex. And in each of those sectors, consumers have to choose among, like I said, several tiers of coverage high deductible plans, managed care plans, and fee-for-service systems, like all these things that are super confusing. Now, there's other countries that have multiple players and private providers like Germany and Switzerland, but healthcare administration is less than half the cost of the United States. And the key to that is standardization. Because think of it like grocery shopping. All the products pretty much have barcodes and credit card machines just all work the same way. Mobile banking is easy because the Federal Reserve puts standards in place for how banks interface with each other. But every health insurer requires a different barcode equivalent and different payment system submission. Almost all the hospitals have electronic medical records, but there is no federal requirement that they interface with one another. And actually, a lot of them will take steps to avoid this interface because that way they can prevent patients from switching doctors or providers. And by interface with each other, you mean sharing the medical records? Yeah. So... How could we standardize healthcare? Well, the big players would have to decide that they wanted 
And in this case, the big player is the government. But so far, the government just sees their role as providing insurance to people through Medicare and Medicaid, but they're not actually looking out for the system as a whole. So unless they get involved, the administrative costs are not going to go down anytime soon. So I wonder how much of the administrative costs is related to that profit motive I talked about. You talked about the trying to find ways to deny people coverage. Um, but, you know, you've also got like entire billing departments that are only necessary because of a profit motive. You've got things like marketing and such. Um, and I wonder how much of that total administrative cost would just go away if hospitals and medical providers didn't have to make a profit. That's a really good question. I don't know. But we're going to talk more expensively, extensively about the profit part. I won't be able to answer that specific question, but give you all more of an idea of how the healthcare system is driven by greed. Another reason why healthcare is so expensive is because drug costs are so high in the US. And not only that, but they're rising. On average, Americans pay almost four times as much for pharmaceutical drugs as citizens of other industrialized countries. In the U.S., the price for insulin is 10 times higher than that in Canada. High drug prices are the single biggest area of overspending in the United States compared to Europe, where drug prices are government-regulated, often based on the clinical benefit of the medication. With little regulation of drug prices, the U.S. spends an average of $1,443 per person. Compare that to $749 on average spent by other countries in the study. And the thing is that price regulation is not hard to implement. It's just a basic rule that says you will not pay more for X, more than X for drug Y. Actually, the state of Maryland does that for hospitals and a lot of European countries does this for pharmaceuticals. But I found that there's a major challenge to this, which is the possible unintended consequences. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this <laughs> because pharmaceutical manufacturers and academic hospitals would lose a lot of money that they have to make up for. And we don't know how they would make up for that gap. They could cut some things like maybe executive compensation, which wouldn't be so bad. But what happens if they decide to cut R&D or something else that's important? So that is just a big question mark. If we were, if the government went in with price regulation. So assuming that we are not fundamentally changing the system and the for-profit nature of these companies continues to exist. Let's just assume that. One thing that I hear them say a lot is essentially that America subsidizes other countries and that we pay higher drug prices so that other countries can pay lower drug prices. And I mean, if you're looking at this from an America first kind of point of view, why do we have to pay $10,000 for insulin so that a German person can pay $1 for insulin. And like, 
would it be enough to distribute those costs if maybe instead both us and the German person paid $10 for insulin? That's a really good point, but I don't know that that didn't come up anywhere on my research, so I cannot speak about that. I mean, that's just my immediate thought. I mean, we do know that the government gives a lot of money to pharmaceutical companies in the U.S. to subsidize their research, and then they get to charge whatever they want for their products because there's no regulation on this. And they are profit centers. They're money-making machines. I am a little skeptical of the idea that research and development would be cut, both because there are so many government subsidies and because can these companies maintain a profit if they are not researching and developing? Like, if they don't do that, then aren't their competitors just going to get a better drug than them and they will end up losing out to their competitors? So, like, I I think it's, you know, more likely that they would probably cut something like wages or, you know, employee benefits or something like that before um, research and development, which is also bad. Yeah, it depends on how much they get from those cuts, though. Like, what are the biggest parts of the budget that can fill that gap? No idea, right? But we're getting closer to what you talked about at the beginning, which is all of this healthcare is a system for profit. It's all based on greed. So one of the other factors is that hospitals are profit centers. Hospital care accounts for 33% of the nation's healthcare costs. Between 2007 and 2014, prices for inpatient and outpatient hospital care rose much faster than physician prices, according to a study in 2019 in health affairs. U.S. prices for surgical procedures in hospitals greatly exceed those of other countries. To give you an example, a typical angioplasty to open a blood vessel, for example, costs a little bit less than $6,500 in the Netherlands, a little bit less than $7,500 in Switzerland, and over $32,000 in the United States. That's, that's a lot. <laughs> and yeah, uh, what is absolutely crazy is that right now, because of the coronavirus lockdown that we had, a lot of people stopped going to the doctor for less serious matters or they canceled elective surgeries. And that affected many hospitals financially. Because like you said, the U.S. healthcare is based on a for-profit insurance system where most health insurance is administered by private companies and individuals that must pay for it themselves, even if their employer subsidizes some of it. And the underlying motive to make money has a ripple effect that increases prices, which is exactly what you talked about when I asked you what you thought was driving healthcare prices high or or up in the United States. So for example, and this I mentioned in the administrative part of it, insurance companies spend an enormous amount of money on utilization review, which is the process that determines whether a medical service is covered under a given plan 
adding that the goal is to not pay consumers for the care they thought they were insured for. So they spend a lot of time having people review what a patient received in terms of medical services and figuring out ways to not pay for that service. Yeah, wasn't there a Saw movie where they got put into one of Jigsaw's traps, I think, for doing that? I don't know. I think there was. I believe you. (laughs) (laughs) But besides hospitals being profit centers, here in the U.S., we practice what some people call defensive medicine. And that means that both physicians and hospitals, they want to avoid lawsuits at any cost. So they love ordering tests and scans just in case. And those tests can cost a lot of money. But even though like a CT scan costs $97 in Canada, so less than a hundred bucks and 500 in Australia, how much do you think a CT scan on average, a typical MRI scan costs $1,420 in the United States. But in Britain, it's about 450 bucks. You see, now I'm like way over guessing. That's the same thing those people in that ambulance YouTube video in Britain uh, did that I told you. After they heard about the ambulance cost, the next one, they're like, how much do you think this costs? And they're like, $160,000. Well, and I'm sure there's a CT scan somewhere that costs what you said. And... To be honest, in many parts of the healthcare ecosystem, people are paid for volume. So that makes them want to just, oh, let's, we might as well get that extra scan because it's in the economic interest of the hospital, the physician and the healthcare system when they're being paid per service to order more things. The justification is that the more, the better. The U.S. has four times the number of MRIs per person as Canada and three times the number of cardiac surgeons. But Americans don't see the doctor any more often than Canadians do. They're not hospitalized more frequently. But the thing is that when they do interact with the medical system, it is just that much more intensive. So they will have a ton of tests and a lot of lab work and referral after referral after referral of doctor, 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 doctor. And, you know, you don't want to say we shouldn't do as much medicine. Like, that sounds like a bad answer. But the problem is not that we're doing tests. The problem is that the tests are being done for the sake of profit. And that the, the problem is that there is, once again, that there is a profit motive. Like, these tests would be great. It would be great. I'll do as many tests as you want if these tests didn't cost money. Well, and in a lot of cases, they would have gotten a better picture of what's going on with the individual if they worked more closely on reviewing medical history, talking to the patient instead of just ordering a bunch of stuff to see what's going on, like what sticks to the wall. Um, The other thing here is that we don't have enough of preventive care or routine care. So there's a lot of effective medications that would treat high blood pressure and high cholesterol, and they've been around for decades, but only half of the people with with high blood pressure are successfully treated this way. Let me guess. Let me guess. They're unprofitable. 
Well, it doesn't make you as much money to treat people regularly to control their blood pressure as it is to get a surgery, right? Same thing with Naturally. mental illness is underdiagnosed and undertreated, even though it has an enormous social cost. And it, it goes back to the factor of greed. Cardiac surgery and MRIs are overprovided because they're very lucrative, but no one is paid to make sure that hypertensive patients take their medications. I mean, I feel like all of this is just the best example of how capitalism is destroying everything. And like every problem you've talked about today is in effect all the same problem. And all this, it's all because healthcare providers are profit first and care second. And if we eliminated the profit motive and hospitals operated with the number one goal of providing the best health care that they possibly could instead of making a profit, all of these problems would just poof, vanish. You're right. And I know we've kind of joked a little bit here and there about prices, but and you overly exaggerated the cost of a CT scan here in the US, but you're like I said, you're not crazy. The prices in the US vary so much because of the complexity of the system and the lack of any set prices for medical services. Providers are free to charge what the market will bear. So the amount paid for the same healthcare service can vary significantly depending on the payer, which means that somebody probably did pay 6000 and whatever dollars you said for a CT scan versus the average of less than 900 It'll vary depending on whether you have private insurance from your employer, if you have uh, private insurance through healthcare.gov, or if you are enrolled in one of the government programs like Medicare or Medicaid. And it'll also vary depending on your geographical area. And then you don't always know what it's going to cost before you get it. Exactly. And for example, for COVID-19, the cost of an urgent care visit and lab tests averages 1696 per person. But it can range from a low of $241 to a high of $4,500, depending on the provider. That's a huge range. And why the hell does this happen? Basically, because companies that provide and charge for healthcare, like hospital systems and drug makers, have more power to keep the costs high when they're negotiating with multiple potential payers, like multiple private insurance companies. But when they have to negotiate with a single payer, like the federal government, if somebody is going to the hospital and their coverage is through Medicaid, then there's more pressure to meet the demand in order to sell their services. A little bit like what you told us with your situation of, or with what you said of like, well, I cannot pay what you're asking me to. And then, well, we'll just reduce it 90%. Can you pay that? Same example. It's like, I'm sorry. So this could have been 10% of the cost you gave me the whole time. (laughs) Yeah, I, I would like be, ramming my head through a wall. So for example, a recent study found that private insurance companies paid almost two 
and a half times what Medicare would have paid for the same medical service at the same facility. Because if the person came in, if the 66-year-old person came in and their health care is through Medicare, which is provided by the federal government, the hospital cannot negotiate with that many people. But if there's another 66 or let's say a 56-year-old that has the same situation, goes to the same hospital, you can point to all of the possible private healthcare providers and you have a marketplace and you can say, well, I want you to pay this. But what makes things worse is that the U.S. government doesn't regulate what most companies in the healthcare space can charge for their services, whether it's insurance, drugs, or care. So that's why there's this, this disparity in the prices. And the truth is that in most other developed countries, the, the costs are controlled in part by having the government play a stronger role in negotiating the prices of healthcare because healthcare is a right. The healthcare systems in these other countries don't require the high administrative costs that drive up the pricing in the US. Like I said, 30, over 34% of healthcare costs are in administrative areas. And these governments also have the ability to negotiate lower drug, medical equipment, and hospital costs. They can influence the treatment used and their patients' abilities to go to a specialist or seek more expensive treatments. And maybe the consumers have fewer choices, but the costs are controlled. So there is that argument that usually comes up during election debates about like, we want to have a lot of choices. Well, do you need to have like 2,300 choices or would you rather know that you will not go bankrupt if you break your leg? Can I rebut that argument a little bit about the choices? So that you're right. That's what they say. They say, oh, you know, we want choice in healthcare. But here's the thing. Under our current system, you are limited in what hospitals you can go to that are in your network. You are limited in what doctors you can use. You are limited to what your insurance will cover and what you can afford. If we had a national health service, for instance, you could go to any doctor in the country or any hospital in the country. You could get any medical care. So really, which system has less choice? You bring up a great point. I just, I don't understand that obsession with the choices. <laughs> like a lot of, um, I get personally terrified when I hear the stories of people, of so many people that, for instance, ration their insulin because they cannot afford to pay what they actually need. And then they end up losing a limb and things like that. Um, it just breaks my heart and makes me angry. And it is something that I'm sure the United States could figure out, but there's not enough political support. So we have to continue pressuring Washington to fix this, to be honest. And that's kind of why I'm really interested in talking to our guest today, because she is a person that ran for Congress and Healthcare was one of her main focus areas. And I would love to know her thoughts on what we can do to getting closer to lowering 
the costs of healthcare in the United States because it is, it, it is something that everybody, absolutely everybody needs. And again, healthcare or good health is something that we take for granted until we have a sore throat or an injured back, and then it can impact everything else in your life. Yeah, you know, in most countries, people don't avoid getting medical care because they're afraid they can't afford it. So let's get into that. Let's talk about that with Lulu and let's figure out what's going on today. And today we're going to talk to Lulu Cycli. She ran for Congress in your neck of the woods in the Dallas-Fort Worth area in the 3rd District of Texas. And healthcare was her number one campaign priority. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, Lulu, thank you for joining us. Thank you guys so much for having me. Very excited to be here. So during this episode, Sylvia and I talked about the reasons why United States healthcare is so expensive compared to other parts of the world. So the first thing I wanted to ask is if you could talk about what your personal experience with that issue has been. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, growing up, my dad is a doctor here in the Dallas area. My mom was a nurse for a very long time. Um, and I remember them always saying how much they were fighting more with the insurance companies than they were actually getting face to face time with patients. Um, both of my parents were, are, my dad still is in the pediatric f- phase. So all they saw were children. That was their specialty was looking after kids um, and not being able to actually diagnose and see a patient and therefore having to do a lot more administrative work was always something I remember them saying growing up. Um, So it's definitely a frustrating situation, a frustrating system, not just for for us as individuals who need healthcare, um, but for the prescribers as well, for the physicians and for those who are trying to help us. So it's a system that we definitely have to figure out a way to overhaul, um, you know, other first world countries have figured out ways to do it. Um, And I'm, you know, I'm hoping that we are on a good path. Now, luckily, we have a good administration in place, who can focus on it. And hopefully, we're on a good path to at least starting to fix the situation. So we focused in this episode mostly on what the causes are um, for this very expensive healthcare system. What are some of the changes that you would want to see made to alleviate some of those problems? I mean, the first thing is I don't want healthcare to be tied to employment. I think that's a very basic thing that a lot of people can agree upon. Um, I'm an employment attorney, so um, I'm very well versed in the COBRA field and how expensive COBRA can be for for those who just lost their jobs, who don't have income flowing in, but then they have to pay hundreds of dollars more a month just to maintain health care because they no longer have a job. Um, I think that is the bare minimum first step that we have to take is finding a way to not tie healthcare to employment. That is a really good point. My mom was a federal interpreter in the courts and then she tried to go freelance. And what made her go back to find a job again was precisely because of the high costs of COBRA. Exactly. And, you know, we have, I have a lot of friends now who have left their corporate jobs, you know, trying to start their own startups or, you know, do things like that. And I've had several friends, you know, do well enough to stay in that sector, but other friends who have said, I can't afford my healthcare. I can't afford the healthcare of the two or three people that I've hired because, you know, they're such a small company. Um, and so I think that that is ultimately, I, I agree with you, Sylvia. I think that's like the ultimate first step because then we prevent people from innovation. I mean, that's just like another kind of way to go is like, not only are we not protecting people and providing them healthcare, but we're 
kind of tying people to jobs that maybe they don't like, maybe tying people to jobs that don't um, foster creativity, things like that, where they can go out on their own and be so much more innovative on their own. We have to start encouraging people to do things like that. And if, if healthcare is still tied to employment, we're preventing it. Well, and of course, the beginning of the this pandemic was the ultimate kind of test of that when all of a sudden you had a health crisis and an unemployment crisis simultaneously, which when healthcare is tied to unemployment, produced some really bad outcomes. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, as awful as COVID was, as COVID-19 was for all of us, I don't think anybody <laughs> went unscathed. Um, um, I, I know that it started changing the conversation so much more. Um, you know, like one of the conversations I started talking about on the campaign trail in 2020 that I never really thought about before was telemedicine. You know, why aren't we investing more in telemedicine? Well, it's because we still have rural communities that don't have access to broadband. I'm hoping with this new infrastructure bill, we'll get that taken care of and out of the way. Um, but, you know, I was seeing my doctors for checkups over telemedicine and my, my health insurance, luckily, was covering it. Um, but, you know, then we have that other sector of mental health and we have people who drink COVID-19. I know therapy bills went up. I know therapists were overbooked. Psychiatrists were overbooked. Psychologists were overbooked because it was just such a hard time. But a lot of a lot of insurance companies and a lot of people in my district who are psychologists and psychiatrists couldn't get the insurance companies to cover teletherapy visits or telepsychologist visits or telepsychiatric visits. Um, and that was very frustrating because they wanted to be able to help people, but they couldn't afford the out-of-pocket to sit on Zoom or sit on Teams or whatever to talk through their issues. At a critical time when the whole world is collapsing and everybody needs therapy, including the therapists, which is yeah, absolutely crazy. My, I, I know you said that the tying of um, uh, insurance to employment is critical, and I completely agree with you. Our system is so complex that some like I would like to know for you what is like the low hanging fruit that we could start with that is a an easy fix that could help people uh, with this entire situation of healthcare being so expensive because I I agree with you that the tying of healthcare to in, to employment is definitely a priority but I don't think that it's as easy to implement as maybe other things that you can think of. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. Unfortunately, I don't think that there's going to be a quick fix for anything when it comes to fixing our healthcare system. I am by no means an expert in fixing the healthcare system. Um, I'm sure maybe there are other people that have great, great ideas. But there was something that I always talked about on the campaign trail was I'm a big believer in the public option, which would help fix the tying of healthcare to employment, and then hopefully um, kind of put... I'm a very like free market kind of thinker, but adding another option into the free market, hoping to bring costs of private healthcare down as well, but giving people an opportunity to buy into an affordable healthcare system um, and not having them pay $1,000 a month just for healthcare, which for a lot of people, that's a mortgage, that's rent, that's rent or mortgage alone, um, not including other required things they have to pay for. So. Um, that's something I'm really hoping I'm watching this administration to see, you know, of course, we have so many other issues right now with voting rights and vaccinations and getting COVID under control. But I'm really hoping that we start building a bridge because it's not going to be overnight. Like we, it, this is going to be a multi-year process before we can get anything substantial done, I, I think. 
Well, you brought up the infrastructure bill and they're including some of this that you talked about into it, at least putting the mental vision and dental into, I think it was Medicare, which I recently had to learn more about um, because of my mother. And I couldn't believe how complicated it was. Like you need to study for hours and hours to to understand what kind of coverage you need. And it's also expensive because you need to keep adding parts to it. And then that doesn't even cover like going to the doctor. That's an additional thing that you would have to do a copay for plus the prescription. So it even with an option provided by the federal government, it could rack up a few hundred dollars a month. I mean, I think you hit it on the head as they make it so complicated here. Um, you know, after college, I lived abroad um, in France for a year, actually. And I unfortunately had to take advantage of their socialized health care. But it was so easy. I mean, the situation was scary as is. I walked in, I did the procedure and I was done. And that was it. I never heard from them again. There was no $10,000 bill waiting for me back home. Um, it was just in and out and you're done. Um, I don't know that that's something that we would see in my lifetime, at least here in this country. Um, but I think it's something that, you know, simplifying the healthcare system that way, anybody who just has a high school diploma all the way up to a PhD can understand what they're paying for, what they're getting into. Um, you know, that way they can make informed decisions because it's, it is very difficult. Did you feel anxious? Like you were waiting for the bill to come and the bill to come and the bill to come and it just didn't come. (laughs) I, um, I, I felt a little bit of anxiety, but I asked a lot of the right questions up front, but I was still hesitant. I was like, are they lying to me? Like, is this actually true? You know, but it was, I, I think, you know, being in a different country and understanding, um, not understanding, but knowing that the system was so much more different than being here back home gave me a little bit of extra comfort, but I was still a little hesitant about it. You know, you I was like, to, like, you're like, are you for real? Really? I'm I was not like, gonna get- I was like, is this my French? Like, do I actually understand you? Like, I think my French is pretty good, but like, is this actually what you're saying? <laughs> so- <laughs> I can't remember if I said this to Sylvia while we were recording or after we recorded, <laughs> but um, when I've lived abroad, I, I kind of carried with me that American perception where I kind of am hesitant to go to the doctor just because in the back of my mind, I instinctually feel like it'll be expensive, which is a little bit of a weird feeling. How would you respond to criticisms of the public option that say that essentially by leaving in a an element that is profit-motivated, by leaving in insurance companies and for-profit hospitals and stuff, you leave the door open for that public option to be undermined when they lobby to undermine it or when they uh, do use their money to leverage the system in some way to undermine that public option? I mean, I think it's one of those things where, to me, this is a stepping stone to making the system even better. I don't think the public option is the end-all, be-all answer to healthcare. I do think it's a good step forward to seeing if a public option could work. Um, and then if it does work, building off of that into something even better. Um, I don't know what that better is, but you know, I think we have to... I. I always like to work in bits and chunks. I'm not a big leaper into things. You know, I like to kind of test... Like Even going into the pool, I'm like, toe first? Like, is it cold? Okay, great. If it's cold, like I'll get right in. And I think that's how I look at the public option is let's test it out first. Let's see how the market reacts to it. And then we move forward because, you know, I truly think that if we put in a public option, it's affordable. It's going to require the insurance companies to, to compete. Um, and I think that that's going to be a huge motivating factor 
for people um, and for the government itself to make sure that we have an affordable option. And, you know, if the insurance companies can't compete, they can't compete, they're going to be forced to lower their prices. That's my optimistic world. But I think that we have to try. And we can't just keep saying what if what if what if we have to try something different, because what we're doing now is not is clearly not working. What are some of the biggest misconceptions that you see people having with the whole issue of, of healthcare? What are, what are things that people believe about healthcare that in your opinion, are inaccurate or just not true? Um, again, I'm not, a, uh, I'm not the expert on this. Um, but from what I've seen just with my parents and, um, the reading I've done, um, I don't think we can get to kind of a socialized healthcare system tomorrow. Um, and I think that that's something that, um, I struggled with a lot on the democratic ticket with a lot of, uh, people who are far more progressive than I was is, you know, I got criticized a lot for not supporting a Medicare for all system. Um, because to me, I don't think that we can make that leap that quickly. Um, and so I think that that's one of the biggest misconceptions that I, I at least personally faced. Um, and I don't think we can get there as quickly as people expect to get there. Yeah, it's a really great idea. It's a really great thought. Yes, a lot of other first world countries do it. But you know, we live in a very different country. And like you said, um, and I think Ian, you alluded to this, we live in a very different country where we have insurance companies who do have a lot of power here. Um, we have to play with the cards that were dealt. Um, and we have to figure out a way forward knowing what we're up against. So that's, that's, I think, one of the biggest misconceptions. Um, some critics would say that by increasing access to healthcare, that that will necessarily cause the quality to degrade. Uh, do you think that there's any substance to that argument? Do you think that that holds water at all? Uh, I think my dad, I, I can never see my dad lowering his quality of care because the insurance companies are not paying him enough. I mean, my dad, my dad works for the state of Texas, um, for a text for a, a Texas hospital, but he also works for a nonprofit Shriners hospital. So a lot of the patients he sees can't pay period. And that does not degrade the quality of work. I mean, you look at physicians, you look at nurses, they are not in it for the money. They are in it to help people. Um, and so I think that that's a, it's an, cop-out argument. I think that's a very big cop-out argument because if you talk to any of these providers, they will tell you they're doing it to help people, to help children, to make sure people are healthy, make sure they're no longer sick. Um, and I, the doctors I know and my dad, <laughs> I would be floored if he was just like, no, I'm not getting paid to do this. I'm not going to look at this patient as well as I would have. I mean, but he sees patients in hospitals like that every, every week. So um, no, I do not believe the quality would degrade. What about the critics that would say that it's not necessarily that any particular doctor is saying, I'm going to provide not as good of care, but that they would maybe have less time with each patient or would have fewer resources at their disposal? You know, I was going to say with first world countries, they're doing it and they're having as much time with each patient as I think that we would have here. Um, you know, I think each, you know, I went to a doctor three months ago. She was overbooked, completely overbooked. Um, and she fit me in. She spent an hour with me, a full hour. I was a new patient of hers. She spent a full hour with me. Um, she was like, I'm so sorry. I have to leave now. I'm overbooked. But do you have any questions? And every doctor that I've gone to see is always like that. They want to make sure 
that you are doing well, that you're healthy. And in their world, I would imagine they don't want to see you again. That means because you've gotten better, you know, outside of, you know, your annuals that you have to do every year. So no, I don't believe that that would be an, an, an issue. You talked about your experience in France. What other countries, healthcare, have you looked up to or admired um, that have things in place that you would eventually like to see implemented here in the US, even if it's not in your lifetime, in, you know, my daughter's lifetime? I think I was looking and I can't be quoted on this, but I guess we're recording. So it's too late now. Uh, But some of the Scandinavian countries cover just everything, you know, like they cover things like IVF for women, women who are having problems getting pregnant. Um, I think more coverage for women's healthcare. I mean, here in Texas, we're <laughs> women's healthcare is under attack like crazy. Um, and so obviously as a woman and hopefully having a daughter one day, I definitely want to see um, a healthcare system in place that's making sure that women's healthcare is covered and women can make decisions with their position for themselves and not having the government intervene and having it be affordable. Um, and for women who want to have children that are unable to have children, it doesn't cost them $10,000 per try to try and have a child. Or if they want to freeze their eggs, that's something that's covered uh, because they're not ready to have a child yet. I think that that, that would be really ideal, um, really ideal in our situation, in our country, for sure. During the first half of this episode, I told Ian about some of the things that I have seen because uh, I'm from Colombia, my mother lives in Colombia, and we're not like a European country. I'm not going to say that we have French level of healthcare, but there are things that leave people in absolute like awe when I tell them that my mother was hospitalized in a very good hospital for two weeks. And when I went to get her out, the nurse asked me, if uh, if I was ready to pay for her to be released. And I asked where the nearest ATM was. And this woman looked at me like I was absolutely insane. It was less than a dollar. <laughs> and I was expecting like, you know, over a hundred dollars, which, well, I, I was in Colombia. So I was expecting like, maybe it's going to cost me a hundred dollars to get her out, which I never would carry with me in cash. And that's why I'm asking, where's the ATM so I can get the cash to pay you? And literally, I could pay in coins to get my mother out of the hospital, which is something that would never happen here. Uh, We had uh, one of my closest friends. Her mother was here and developed a very aggressive cancer and had to be hospitalized. And she racked up tens of thousands of dollars in bills as she was dying. It's something that would bankrupt absolutely anybody. If you told this to somebody in another country that is not used to this, they'd be shocked. We are now handling this a little bit like shootings that we're like, oh, it's just another one. I mean, I've, I've heard stories from people in my town just having to choose between paying for their mortgage or paying for food for that week or trying to put a dent in their healthcare bill. I mean, it's... It's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, a lot of the times we can't help what's happening with our bodies and what what's happening with our health, um, and being forcing yourselves to have to pay to figure out that situation. Do I feed my family this week, or do I have collections come knocking on my door because I can't pay my healthcare bill? Is atrocious. It's atrocious. But Ian also brought something up in the first half of this episode and another friend told me the same thing that a lot of us don't know that we could handle this differently with 
these uh, hospitals because Ian had like a $2,000 bill and he said, I can't pay you $2,000. And then they said, oh, okay, just pay us. I don't know how much. No, they just totally dropped it because I had already paid some cash up front. Um, but they just totally dropped it. And then it was I, I've heard those stories too. Yeah, I've heard those stories too, is that if you just call and ask them and tell them you can't pay, a lot of times that they'll reduce, significantly reduce it or just wipe it. Like 90% or in Ian's case, 100%. But most people don't know that. And so they go into debt because they need to pay for these bills. On a tangential issue, not about healthcare cost, but healthcare related we're trying to get more people to take the COVID-19 vaccine right now. And I know that the area of Texas that you're from is one of the areas that's kind of slacking in vaccination rates. How would you say that we should approach trying to get the people who are not yet vaccinated, who are probably mostly people that have kind of decided they don't want to get vaccine vaccinated? Um, how would you approach trying to get those people to get vaccinated? This is something I rage tweet about all the time. <laughs> so I'm glad you asked me this question. Um, and I was actually just talking to my mom about this, this this morning, literally this morning. A lot of these people who aren't getting vaccinated are either people of color because they're too afraid or they're the Fox News watchers, right? Um, and you've got jerks like Tucker Carlson every night telling people not to get vaccinated but I guarantee you he was one of the first people in line to get vaccinated. He's vaccinated. Like we know this, this is not a secret. So, you know, here in Texas, I would really, really, really put it on the, our governor who doesn't want to do anything except suppress our vote, but he needs to be the one to go out to tell people to get vaccinated because these Fox news viewers are listening to him. And when he came out a couple months ago and said, no masks. It's your body. Texans do what you want. And then two weeks later, put a six week ban on abortion. It, it's just, it's just drives me absolutely nuts and up the wall. Um, I know that there are a lot of, you know, comedians and celebrities, um, black, black celebrities and black comedians who have been very vocal, um, to tell, you know, those communities do go out and get vaccinated. You know, it's not scary. It's going to help you. Um, it's going to protect you. But I really put the onus on people like, unfortunately, Tucker Carlson and Governor Greg Abbott to really talk to their supporters and their communities and say, look, we can't get out of this unless we get vaccinated. I mean, California yesterday, I believe, LA County yesterday just came out and said, now we have to do masks indoors because the new variants are spiking. I mean, yes. and California is a place that everyone thinks Everyone's getting vaccinated. It's fine. But LA County does have one of the lower per population. They have one of the lower vaccination rates because of those communities of color that are really afraid to go get vaccinated. Um, so, I mean, we can't get out of this. This is a team effort. This is not, this is not individual sports. This is a team effort and we all have to do our part and we really need those people to step up and speak up. But unfortunately, you know, with the former president, it's, he's really politicized the vaccine and COVID. And, you know, he was the first one to get the vaccine in DC right before he left office. So I think it's incredibly irresponsible of those people to continue to tell people it's your body, it's your choice, knowing that they themselves have gotten the vaccine, knowing that it's important, knowing that they needed to be safe and uh, get the vaccine to be safe. And why isn't Governor Abbott doing as much as he could? Is it anything more than just that they, he's facing a Republican primary challenge? I mean, we knew he was going to face everything he's doing right now is because he's running for office and he has 
primary challengers. Um, I don't know if he's trying to appeal to the super Trump portion of the Republican Party. And that's why he's saying what he's saying. I don't know if he's trying to appeal to the anti-vaxxer wing of the Republican Party. And that's what, why he's saying what he's saying. Um, but it's incredibly irresponsible as, you know, the second largest state in the whole country having your governor come out and tell your people to not go get vaccinated or it's your choice to do so is irresponsible. It's almost to the point of negligent. I would say it's negligent for him to come out and say your body, your choice. I, I mean, I can understand that he he can say he can't force people to go get vaccinated, but to encourage people to go get vaccinated, that's the minimum he can do, right? Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, you have other leaders of other nations telling people, hey, you know, you can't go into restaurants and you can't go to concerts and you can't go to malls and you can't go shopping unless you show a vaccination card. And then immediately you have a million people sign up to get vac- vaccinations. I think I just tweeted about this this afternoon. Um, I think it's just, it's ridiculous. And it's negligent on his part to to not encourage people to go get vaccinated. Other Republican governors are encouraging people in their states to get vaccinated. DeSantis, this is just, yeah. Oh, uh, DeSantis is not. But yeah, you're right. I mean, other... Other Republican governors are well, in like fact. Um, West Virginia, for instance. Yeah. I can't remember. Jim Jim Justice or something in West Virginia has pretty good vaccination program for a very Republican state. And like you mentioned, the the Delta variant is throwing a whole curveball into this thing where L.A. County is now asking people for masks. Just a few hours ago, day of recording, uh, the U.K. reached fifty thousand uh, cases for the first time since January. This is one of the European success stories on vaccinations, because we have other European nations like Spain that is severely behind on vaccinations. And Italy, too. Yeah, it's it's really scary, you know, like, and we're starting to travel again. Like I, I've been recently traveling and I felt safe. Um, but, you know, now you have all these precautions now rising again. And you're like, well, do I want to travel again? Like that was fun for a trip, you know, now I'm back in my back in my quarantine hole, because people are being irresponsible and not taking it seriously. I mean, it's it's really scary. In our case, we are still in very paranoid state because our daughter is under the age of 12. So she cannot get vaccinated. And I kind of don't want to find out what happens. So we are both vaccinated past the two weeks after second shot. And we're still Huddled in our house. Better safe than sorry. We've only done trips to the neighboring cities. We haven't uh, got into fly anywhere yet. <laughs> uh, so before we finish up, um, where can people find you? Where can people follow you and learn more about what you do? If you want to hear my Greg Abbott Ken Paxton rants, you can follow me <laughs> at Lulu for Texas, L-U-L-U-F-O-R-T-E-X-A-S. On Instagram and Twitter, I am no longer on Facebook. I cut that cord, but I'm on Instagram and Twitter. My Twitter is way more interesting, um, and I'm much more frustrated on Twitter <laughs> recently, <laughs> um, just with what's going on in Texas. But would love to have y'all follow. Um, that would be great. I'm following you right now. I can't wait to have Twitter discussions and amplify your tweets. Like this is so exciting. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's challenging on Instagram to always have to have a picture. Uh, Sylvia's really good at that. I'm not very good at Instagram, though. I've been, like, screenshotting my tweets and putting them in my stories just to keep engagement. But, yeah, it's it's harder. I mean, when I was doing campaign stuff, it was way easier to post pictures. But everyone's huddled in. We can't really do anything. It it is exhausting. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today. Thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you, Lulu. 
I love when I find somebody that is as passionate as we are, and we could just like talk for hours and hours, and especially somebody that rants about Texas crazy politicians is awesome. I love that Lulu pointed out something that didn't occur to me as like a number one priority, which was the tying of your healthcare to your employment. It's something that a lot of people that don't live in the US don't realize how that works here. And it is such a, I think, area for, I don't know, if it makes you feel like you have those ball and chain things that you're dragging everywhere because you do not have any kind of freedom. And like she said, it prevents people from starting businesses or any kind of in- innovation startups because they cannot afford the healthcare that they would need for themselves and or their families. And so they just stay stuck in a job that they hate because they literally cannot afford to try to do what they want to do. I think she did a good job of identifying some of the problems. I do disagree with the idea that we can't get universal health care in our lifetimes. Um, I think it's a little pessimistic when like, I think it's probably six senators away or something like that, you know, like win two more Democratic seats and then replace, you know, four to six senators um, that are currently in there. And that may take 10, 15 years, but I think that is something that could be done in the near future. But I mean, I think she's looking in the right direction, but I, I do think it's a little pessimistic to think that universal health care isn't a feasible thing at this point. I don't agree with that. I do agree that Texas is, a, there's, a, there's a competition for who can be the most embarrassing for us. And it's a multi-way tie between like Greg Abbott, Ted Cruz, Dan Patrick, and Dan Crenshaw, and Louis Gomer, and the list goes on. Well, on your, what's the name of your lieutenant governor? That's Dan Patrick, oh, and yeah. we've also got Ken Paxton, who is yeah. our attorney general that yeah. is under indictment. Um, wow. And several of our Congress people, obviously Ted Cruz, like I said. Oh, no, he's at everybody's top of the list. It's not even a <laughs> Texas thing. It's a U.S. thing. Um, <laughs> I like that you want to be more optimistic about it. I honestly don't know because I can see both points. I do, however, think that... This pandemic has accelerated a lot of things that would have maybe naturally happened over a certain span. And this just put the 2X or 3X button on it. And we already see examples of it. I, I like There are things regarding um, remote work that would have happened maybe in the future. And I, I know this is not related to healthcare specifically, but it's just a perfect example of something that definitely was accelerated because of the attention that it got due to what the pandemic made us do. Same thing with probably the need for childcare uh, subsidized or free preschool because nobody that had a small child could do any work if they had children in the house and uh, you do need caretakers and we need to figure out a way to help parents deal with their kids if they're supposed to work. Uh, and there's a number, I mean, a huge list of things that have been accelerated due to the pandemic. And I want to believe that the need for healthcare and the need for mental health care and other things is on that list. Yeah, I definitely think that the pandemic uh, made people look at things that they may not have considered to be feasible in the past. 
Well, Sylvia, who are we talking to next week? We are talking to Chuck Rocha. He is the president and founder of a company called Solidarity Strategies. He was a senior advisor to both the 2016 and 2020 Bernie campaigns. And in his role, he built the structure of the operations and developed the overwhelmingly successful strategy behind the 2020 campaigns Latino Outreach Operation. Well, I am very excited about that. And you know what you all should do is you should subscribe so that you don't miss that episode. You should also leave a rating and a review if you're on a platform that allows for that. Definitely be sure to go back and listen to our back catalog. We have a lot of cool episodes in that. And of course, share this with a friend, family member, or coworker. And if you want to reach us, send us an email at info at theexplanationpod.com. Follow us on Instagram at theexplanationpod or explanation underscore pod on Twitter. You can search The Explanation Podcast on Facebook as well. And thank you all for joining us. Bye. Bye. Bye.